brought to you by Penguin. Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Derek Obusu, and today I'm going to be talking to British-Nigerian poet Yomi Shode. His new poetry collection, Mannerisms, has just been released, and it's a profound and powerful debut collection that looks at the lives of black British men and boys. Jackie Kay has called it thrilling, once in a generation, which is pretty high praise. I loved it, and I'm so glad to get the chance to talk to him today. So, Yomi Shode, welcome. My guy. How you feeling? How you I'm doing? I'm good. It's been a while, man. It's been a while, yeah. Just to be, I feel like even it's so weird that this is our first conversation in a long time. Do you know what I mean? And what better space to be talking about? Let's craft life, yeah. writing. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so you, your new collection, your debut poetry collection. Yeah, bro. Mannerisms. Yes. How's it? How's it feel? How's the writing process been? Because I know this has been a long time coming. I remember seeing you perform the early poems in about. 2018 I think it was yeah yeah you know I've long said to myself that yes I'm writing this book but it's more than a poetry collection for me I've always seen it as not only a think piece but I wanted to create a piece of work that can travel and move into different mediums in terms of considerations whether they're arguments whether it's is to be taken in in a multidisciplinary way as well and the first one of those was in early 2019 when you was there in the audience where I was talking about this process of the research I'd done so far in relation to the book at the time it was titled mannerism mannerism um in kind of in terms of the play on of the kind of like how we all kind of spell Manner, like manners, mannerism as a whole mm-hmm. and what my arguments are in terms of saying okay cool I get that but these kind of behavioural traits I'm really interested in the code switching that happens within the black body specifically black men and boys something that I think is innately from the area in which one grows up in hence the manner as in the area and I feel like those isms are things that innately we carry dependent all everywhere in spaces that we're in and the body never rests as a result of it. Yeah. And I was really interested in that. Then in came this whole thing around art and art history. And then I came up to work the works of Caravaggio and then I was like, oh, it was really interesting how his life, for the most part, you can look into his life and also look into like the average kind of like black boy's life as well and Absolutely. see that there are some... That a, a lot of parallels. A lot of parallels. Yeah. Like this guy grew up with no men in his life. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's the whole kind of trope of black boys not having any father figures or absent fathers. And this is the reason why they're getting into X, Y, and Z. This is the reason why there's all of this happening. But it's interesting how these graces are not afforded to black boys and black men, irrespective of having no father figure around. They're still surviving and they're still kind of pushing through and doing what they're doing. But then that consideration is not necessarily is there. But when you're looking at Someone like, say, Caravaggio, he, this guy's lauded of his works. I'm just like, oh, how does, <laughs> can we make it make sense? Do you see what I mean? Yes, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a real strange one. And, you know, I've thought this about the writer, the Marquise de Sade, mm, mm. who was a horrible human being, mm. a terrible person. But, you know, he's, his work is always respected. Yeah. People talk about him as if they say he wasn't this, sadi- I mean, sadistic is named after him, de yeah, Sade. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that's how, how nuts he was. And, you know, I watched some shows about Caravaggio mm. 
and they always kind of like, yeah, he was a troubled person. Yeah. Or he, he was a little rascal. Yeah, yeah. But he was a murderer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know let's let's I mean? be very real. Let's like, be serious, yeah. Let's be very serious. And I Absolutely. think, and it's that thing of a man of his time, right? And I think that phrase in itself is something that is used over time in terms of just like a, per, a person of their time. And it's almost kind of pertains to whiteness. And it, it's, it's something that, alleviates the behavior. You know, there was an interview that I was watching one time where the historian was talking about Caravaggio and saying, you have to consider and think about the times then, you know. So it was rough. It was X, it was this, it was this. So, yes, he killed someone, but that's just... That's just how it was but, back but then. If, that, just, if, if that's how it was like, back then, why was he arrested so was, many times? And then why was he then let go? Because he's on payroll. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? And I think, fine, if this is going to be an argument, then let's talk about gigs. Let's talk about these rappers. Let's talk about these artists that are talking about situations of their time that are speaking for a community of people that also are well aware of that specific time. But, and how we considering art and how we considering violence. Do you see what I mean? Because mm-hmm. there was a whole policy that banned grime to be performed on stages. I remember. Do you see what I mean? Yep. A whole police kind of like, you can't perform this. Surely these are people of their time that are making music and, and talking about stories that we are experiencing. And why are we not afforded that kind of grace in the same way that you have people going on the actual news channel to say, yes, it was a common thing to kill someone then because that's just what that life is then. But to play a song about growing up in, in Peckham, for example, on radio, mainstream is like, no, we just can't condone that kind of violence. Mm. Radio edited, by the way. We can't condone that kind of message going out there to the masses, even though it's art. And for the most part, we have to swallow all of that and still have to kind of move forward. I was even nervous in the process of thinking about this book because I was like, I've gone through the whole process of it being sent to like many editors and the feedback was one of like, oh, really captivating. Yes, brilliant. But it's always a but. And that but was an interesting thing for me because if you said all of these things, why isn't it something that you would want to push forward with? And I got tired of trying to even trying to ask that question. And, you know, I don't know if they know just how to deal with this type of, I don't know, I want to say writing, but I'm not, I'm like, it's crafted. <laughs> it's, yeah, you've yeah. got your couplets in there, you've got your triceps in there, you got, yeah. but it's speaking to experiences that I don't know whether... The responsibility of the publisher or the editor is that to say, okay, cool, is how do I deal with this kind of work? And that's not for me to answer. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And I think that is a huge issue right now within publishing as a whole, because, you know, a lot of these books, I mean, we're we're pressing for more representation. We're saying we want more books written by black authors or authors of colour, but they're getting sent to editors who don't have the correct sensibility to Mm. understand what the author is trying to do Mm. or the life experiences are different or they're so close-minded that they're not able to see you know beyond their kind of narrow white middle class existence do you know what I mean and so these books they can say it's brilliant but then they might feel like but I'm just not the right person to do this though but it's like but then how many other people out there can do it do you know what I mean or even their audiences if the editor of the publishing house knows the audience and what they like then to kind of put a book like Mannerism forward, it might like, what, jar the system? But isn't that the whole point? If, if, point? if representation is something that is 
key on people's minds. Like it's all well and good until people are faced with a position and, and a situation to kind of be like, oh, there needs to be an action going forward here. I was finding a lot of this process, it was more than the writing. The writing is one thing, but then there's like politics left, right and centre of it all. Absolutely. And I was like, oh, there's things that actually goes beyond the writing here that needs to be considered. And ironically, everything is still moving in this whole sense of mannerism. I still have to find, essentially what's been asked of me is like, can you talk about these things? But in a way that doesn't necessarily make folks just feel like, damn, like, or uncomfortable, or yep. be in a position of accountability Absolutely. Or, and responsibility. And I wasn't prepared to do that. It's always about making other people feel comfortable. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's an excellent poem that you have in the book where you're talking about being on a writer's retreat yeah. and oh, just write and, you bro. know, some, someone comes up to you and just says, do yeah. you want to be white? True story, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt that. Of true course, story. I felt it. And even on top of that, in that situation, everything is true. I was sent a task, was sent a task to write a guzzle wrote the guzzle um, first draft for, 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 for the listeners who don't know what a guzzle is and, oh, for, and a, for me a who doesn't know what a guzzle part. is so a guzzle is beautiful kind of like Arabic form it's very musical you have the, the end word of the poem it's a repetition basically so in my guzzle the end word it's song so the first couplet you have song at the end second second line of the couplet you have song and a traditional kind of guzzle it will have your name oh, in I the read last that. you have one of last, those in here as well yeah, don't you yeah, you have course, you yeah. have your name in the last couplet of the guzzle it's quite religious to a certain degree so there's kind of references to to religion to some degree it's a very sacred and it's very kind of respected musical form and the first time I haven't tried to give this a go, I loved it because my background is is music. Also, in terms of like kind of coming into poetry. So when I wrote it, it made sense that, oh, I got a rhyme and then it's just kind of like ends in this word. Okay, cool. Let me kind of flip this on his head and let me do it. So the first draft of it actually came out relatively good. In the interval now where we had a break and everyone's having the teas and coffees, writer comes up to me and says that, oh, you wrote a good guzzle. I'm like, cheers. It's, oh, yeah, but of course you would because you're spoken word artist. So naturally, it comes easy for you. And I was like, sorry? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> but I couldn't help but to be like, nah, there's absolute, absolute something behind you just saying that. Yeah, yeah. There's so much energy behind you yeah. just saying that. And then you're trying to belittle me and just being like, mm-hmm. credit me as a writer and credit the fact that I wrote something. There's years of snobbery behind There's that There's mad statement. snobbery behind yeah. it. And then I'm finding that it's that kind of battle of just trying to go through with that. I didn't write that with a spoken word hat on. I wrote that with a writing hat on. And I wrote that because I had a story to tell. And you're not giving me my credit yes. for just being a writer. Why else am I going to be on a retreat? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so it's those kind of truths there, those kind of real life experiences that I don't necessarily know how to deal with. But guess what? These are my experiences and I'm not alone. (laughs) I'm not alone in those experiences. So it was definitely a process in the writing of the book and still is a process in the politics of it in terms of how it's received. Do you see what I mean? I mean, yeah, it's it's a process and the politics never stops. You know, you could be five years in the future with this poetry collection and there's still going to be some politics around it in some some way, how people are receiving it or where they want to place it and so on. It it just never stops. But I just want to quickly come back to um, Caravaggio Mm. and ask you why you decided to kind of have him and his art 
almost as a centerpiece to, to the collection? I think the first thing, I did not want to explore these kind of biases, whether you want to say racism or what have you. I did not want to explore any of that through a white lens. Do you know what I mean? It was the last thing I wanted to do. And the thing is, he was brought to my attention by friends, loving friends. Like, I was looking into a totally different era of art. So in the research for mannerism, I came across mannerist painters of the 1600s, like of that time. And the mannerist painters, at the point of, you know, the high renaissance of just painting baby Jesus in looking like baby Jesus, do you know what I mean? Like you've got all the different kind of palettes and all the stuff that's making baby Jesus just look absolutely like lauded. The mannerist artists will come in and they will just mash up baby Jesus, bro. They will absolutely, they'll elongate the neck, the arms. <laughs> they will use colour palettes that you just don't use. It was an absolute jar to just the status quo of the time, yeah. right? And I compared that straight to punk and grime era, what they do in terms of non-conformity, like they will do something on their terms. I found parallels in there, but my greatest thing there was at the same time, you still have enslaved Africans and the bodies, these black bodies that people just found or white people at the time found odd, the big bottoms, the round noses. So there was something in the elongating of those mannerist artists and how everything just looked odd and weird to the people that took offence to how dare you kind of make baby Jesus look like this. And I'm like, but those same oddities that you're seeing and what these mannerist painters are doing, you're also absolutely seeing oddities in, or what you think are odd in these black bodies because they just don't look normal, according to you. So I felt like I was on a right journey with that. And that's where that initial talk was in 2019, January. But then of that time, of that era, people brought Caravaggio to my attention because he was an era after the Mannerist painters, the Baroque era. Mm -hmm. And they were just talking about this guy. He paints these figures as though they're everyday people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they, a lot you know, of these, the people who, who he would like, he would paint. Yes. Well, a lot of so, them were kind of like prostitutes or people living on the streets. Right, and so, so like yeah, that. so these high figures, so these high, high, high figures and kind of biblical high figures and what have you, he might hire, like, say, people from the streets or mm -hmm. to the likes of, like, mistresses or what have you to be the figures that he will paint some of these biblical figures. Yeah. Everyday kind of people. Like, you know, the, the fame for having dirt and feet, fame for having chiaroscuro in terms of light and dark and usage of that. So he was the equivalent of what you could say a Robin Hood or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Of yeah. the people type thing. But I kind of always considered him as the bad boy of the art world. And his life, this was a very, very, very wild guy. But it's amazing how he got away with so much. And I was really interested in how did you get away with so much? He was licensed to carry a, a dagger. <laughs> I'm just like, how do you... This guy, this is the last person you'd want to license to carry a dagger. Like, you can't brandish it on road. He got caught doing it, sent him to jail. He's like, you're going to let me go. You need to let me go. I'm on the payroll. They looked in the payroll. They let him go. And I'm like, where have I kind of experienced or know of people that are licensed to carry weapons and they're not necessarily all there? And I'm like, police officers now. Mm -hmm. Police officers are licensed to carry guns. They shoot unarmed black men, go through trial, and in some cases, they are acquitted. We're seeing that change to some degree, like in the last kind of year, two years. But up until that point, 
the parallels between like the 17th century and here, it hasn't really changed. So a lot of this, I'm like, oh, we haven't necessarily seen changes happening. Caravaggio killed someone, fled. Jack Shepard killed someone, fled. Um, when everything was happening with like Ukraine, I don't know if you remember the point in which Africans were also trying to leave. Yes, I remember. Ukraine, and they weren't letting them leave. I remember. But there was in the, some cases they were flogging them. In well. some is mad cases they were flogging them, mm-hmm. and in greater cases, what you saw from the news outlets after that was that it's very unusual to have these kind of situations happen within Europe. It happens in you know Africa and other places, and I'm just like, where you had two people that killed someone leave with grace, you have a community of people in Ukraine, black African people are also trying to leave for their safety and you don't allow them to leave but you do allow people that are not black to leave how do you get to experience grace here what what does that mean all of these different things they still run mad parallels and i suppose for me it was important to kind of draw some parallels to his life for one but it's not about him. I just wanted to kind of give some examples. And two, if we're talking about his paintings, amazing paintings, you still have film directors that lord this guy. He's an inspiration, which is still something, like, to me, that's shocking because they're like, you know of his life, but you don't ever talk about that side, but you always talk of the work. I think Scorsese said that. Scorsese said it. Yeah. The paintings were important to me, especially something like The Calling of St. Matthew is very important to me. Calling of St. Matthew, the inspiration of St. Matthew and the martyrdom of St. Matthew. And I drew direct comparisons to Top Boy, mm-hmm. Summer House, season two. Folks that have watched Top Boy since the Channel 4 days would know what I'm talking about because the whole calling of St. Matthew depicts when Jesus went to Matthew and just said, follow me. And it's a biblical reference from Matthew in the Bible. And I felt like there's no difference between that kind of communication between Jesus and Matthew than olders and ends to younguns, like just being like, yo, come with me. Like to them, this is, to see an older is almost like to see, that's that's God. That's like someone of a higher power. Yeah, they really look up to them. They, They look up to them. Do you know what I mean? So that painting you see something, you don't necessarily write about what you see on the nose, but you just write about where it takes you. And for me, that's where it took me. Like Jesus speaking to Matthew and Matthew just being like, I, you say it, I'm gone. That's Jesus. How are you going to say no to Jesus? Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you deny that? Are you like, Jesus, hold up. now, nah, just because I have lunch first. Do you know what I mean? But it's no different from olders speaking to youngers and those that watched season two of Top Boy we know how that ends in terms of the story of Michael. But again, it's those kind of references that I'm like, I love the idea of an art critic that wants to read all about Caravaggio, picks up the book, reads the title, and then reads a poem that has nothing to do with Caravaggio, but it speaks to an experience of my own experience and people that I know and stories that I've heard over time that brings them in. Because a lot of the time it's that kind of dissonance of, oh, I know all of this is happening, but... I'm not going to engage in it yeah. because it's easier to not engage and just play like oblivious to what's going on. Because as soon as you notice it, it's calling something from you. And sometimes I find that, especially with white people to a certain degree, to see something and what's been asked of you to deal with it, it's a very scary thing to deal with because then it challenges you in a way that you're just like, 
I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. But on our side, I've had to deal with these things on countless occasions. And those times is a draining process, you know? Absolutely, yeah. No, no, I hear you. Um, before we move on to your, your objects as well, I just wanted to quickly touch on your inclusion of, I guess, pop culture yeah. in, in your collection and whether that was a conscious thing, whether you consider, okay, maybe will this date the work or is pop culture... Because a lot of the time, you know, especially critics and... I guess what we would call snobs look down on pop culture as being like a low, low culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not elevated to the heights of, of certain things. So was that something you did on purpose, you know, putting someone who they would consider high culture, Caravaggio, yeah. and then the likes of like The Wire and Top Boy or an event that's happened on, on TV with Stormzy bringing on that young boy yeah. to spit lyrics? I just need to document it for this time, man. If you take Alex Mann, for example, and Dave at Glastonbury and what have you. Oh, Dave, sorry. Yeah, Dave. yeah. I was gassed but i was excited i'm like what look at this guy just spitting aj tracy's lyrics he's going for it like i remember the next day i woke up he was doing the rounds on twitter it went viral and then he went on to be interviewed on itv with pierce morgan and the like and um i see pierce dancing to grime lyrics i see pierce just being like we need more inspirations like you doing what you're doing. I salute you. I'm like, you, a whole you, bigging up grime. Because it's not AJ Tracy that's spitting these lyrics. I see all of them dancing. Interestingly enough, flicking through the channels, I see AJ Tracy being interviewed. And he's been asked about gangs and women twerking in his videos. So I'm like, how does make it make sense? On one channel, we've got the individual that is spitting your lyrics and people are loving it and they're calling him an inspiration. On the flip side, we've seen an actual person who's written his lyrics and he's been asked about gangs and women twerking in his videos and you can see in his body how uncomfortable it is. Make it make sense. Mm -hmm. And then, I think a week or two weeks after, Alex Mann is given a record deal, releases his first single. And then, I didn't I know like, that. single, record deal, and then I had to look at myself. I immediately had to look at myself because I'm like, I'm complicit in this behavior. And that behavior is when white people absorb and kind of take in the black culture by way of lyrics. Or even if, if I see kind of something on a video of Yoruba being spoken by like white folks f fluently, I'm gassed. I'm like, look at that person go. But then you have to stop and say, why is this impressive? Why is it impressive? Yeah. I have to ask myself, why is it impressive? And then I'm just like, I was part of the mass of people that retweeted, that joined in the behaviour of that being, to a point, appropriated. So as much as I'm now cussing, like, what? why did he get a record deal? I also have to consider my contribution mm -hmm. to get to that stage. So that was my initial thing of just being like, this is why the sense of popular culture coming in it's important because I found myself do that so many times now that I have to spot my own triggers as to when that happens and when now I have to kind of allow myself to kind of take time before I get into that. So for me, as this kind of orator, if I'm not seeing this in books, don't get me wrong, I will see it in books, but I need to write about it in my own way, in that whole feeling. So from Alex Mann to the Euros and that Euros moment, is a big moment that the Euros when they missed their penalties. Yes. Huge moment. Yes. There's not one group of people, black folks that I've spoken to. I'm like, where were you the evening the man there walked up to take their penalties? 
And did you feel what I felt? And they're like, bro, felt it. And I was like, from when this is like a universal feeling from one of them missing the penalty, we knew, ah, we just knew what was going to happen. But three, done. Immediately, I'm texting people, stay safe tomorrow. Stay safe tonight. That in itself is a mannerism that we just know what's about to happen. And I'm like, those kind of feelings, it's important to still document, especially in this book, to be like, you're not alone. Mm. Because that shared anxiety, it was something that just sifted right through every single kind of black home in that space. To be like, that next day, if you can work from home, absolutely do so because that danger is there. So for me, it's a point of reference and documentation of the times that we're currently in or that moment that happened X amount of years ago that I was still witness to. And it's not only about like just those kind of stories, but it's in reference to music as well. Like I think there's certain tunes, Channel U days, MTV bass days. Love that poem, love those. That kept us going because these songs kind of kept us going through those moments so there are reference points that i think that are nostalgic mr marcus a black porn star mm -hmm. worked for the man them where fathers weren't necessarily around who we didn't know how to make sense of love or sex mm -hmm. who do we look up to this is the person that was prominent at that time do you know what i mean there's different things within popular culture that i think were key attributes to how we are now basically okay no, i hear you i hear you okay so yeah moving on to your objects as we always do on the penguin podcast first it is somewhere you are happy yeah and you said with friends or family or on your own actually yeah yeah yeah, yeah. is there one you prefer is there one i prefer do you know growing up as an only child i've always loved my own company but i've always understood that being in your own company can also push people away. Especially now having a family is a case of just like being as present as possible. But some days I just drift. I drift away wanting to be in my own space a lot of the times. Is that essential for you as a writer though? Um, Do you need that? I, I don't even know if it pertains to writing. I, I struggle with happy or happiness as a whole. Do you know what I mean? I think I like the idea of being content do you feel like you would know when last you felt happy? You're probably asking the wrong person. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm quite cynical. And, Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like, so to, to kind of be like happy, mm. we would be in the same boat, I think. There's, there's a sense of like... But if you can't remember, doesn't that mean that it's probably your natural state? Of what? What, what do you mean? Of being. Of, of being. Yeah, yeah. Of just, yes, 100%. Yeah. Of just like being present, of being there. Like, yeah. I know where I don't want to be. And I don't want to be at points of like absolute deep, deep reflection. And maybe to a certain degree, that's probably why I keep myself so busy a lot of the times is because stillness is a very scary thing because then it brings so much. So now actively what I'm trying to do is be as still as possible. I was on a train to Exeter um, a couple of days ago. I'm like, all right, cool. Let me do some emails. Let's do da 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 Wi-Fi is dead. Mm. <laughs> Wi-Fi is not working. All right, cool. Let me try to send something on my phone. No signal. Just be still. I'm like, all right, cool. Let me just be still. Let me just look out the window. Let me people watch. And what then comes in is all these floods of different things that are happening and the things I'm trying to, in, to a certain degree, run from, but I have to get comfortable with to just 
come in right. and have to find a way to deal. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, no, I hear you, I hear you. So your second object is something you inherited. Yeah. Yes, and can you tell us what they, they are? My, my mum's observations and my father's silence. I tend to not knee-jerk much into situations. I tend to observe. What do you mean? Like if, and I think this ties into another one of my objects, I tend not to go in straight away with, let's say if, it's a, if there's a thought of a friend or something like that I'm having or whatever it is, and it's not the best thought, I might be feeling like, right, why are you acting or behaving this way? Da, 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 da. A knee-jerk reaction was just to go in with just be like, what's your problem? And I think what I've inherited via my mum and the observations is just to kind of sit back for a bit and just kind of take time and observe what this is about. And that observation is looking into the many options of this, is what's my behaviour like? What's their behaviour? What's what's happening in society that could be impacting on behaviours? What am I not considering? And I think when I kind of look through all of these things, there's a better pace as opposed to me just going into something. And what I might be thinking, someone has a problem with me, it might actually be a case of they're going through grief at the moment. Mm. But they just, that time they reacted or snapped back in a message it wasn't nothing to do with you. Yeah. But in observing that, I can take time for myself to see. Um, do you apply that to your poetry as well? I, yes. Because I know what can happen is when you write a poem, you may get so excited trust about me. it, you want to put it out there, or you want to perform it, trust and me. it's just not ready. Trust me. And there's something about the editing process that takes time anyway. But there's something about just leaving the poem to just be. So I've left some of these poems for like six to eight months. I've just left them alone. And then I've come back to it with fresher eyes. I've come back to it with new experiences and new ways. Just off the back of observing, from looking at this from a different perspective, this allowed me that space. And my father's silence, I don't, I don't wear it in a prideful way. I am silent a lot of the times. But at the same time, I don't know if I should be more vocal. So it's almost like a contradiction of what I just said. Like, I don't want to be knee-jerky, but at the same time, I'm aware of how silent I am and I don't want to always be silent. But I think there are ways to measure my silence. So things that I probably would have just swallowed and just kind of walked with before, I'm not as willing to do now. So earlier we spoke about, you know, editors and boy, they're not necessarily know what to do with some stuff, yep. which is nothing to them. Absolute respect. The business will always be the business. But what I would normally sit with inside of me, I don't want to sit with that feeling. I'd rather speak on it to a certain degree. And in being able to speak on it, I'm like, all right, I'm challenging my own silence over time because I'm not letting my body take all of this mm. all the time. But the silence, I factor in a lot sometimes. And I, and I guess I'm just going through a process of learning how to gradually speak more and more and, and hear my voice. Do you see yeah. what I mean? No, I and not let my voice be overpowering because I'm not trying to be a preacher. I'm not trying to come here to be a spokesperson for anything. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I, le- I leave that to folks that do that well. So it's all good. Okay. So, yeah, moving on to your third item. It's a really interesting one, actually. Something you should have thrown away. <laughs> and you said people's perceptions. I said a dash that way a long time. <laughs> because let's get to the writing, because I know you might have some stuff to share on this as well. Like, there was a good chunk of time. I was like, how do you make it in this whole writing situation? What do you, What do I need to do to get 
a seat at the table or to get in. And I'm like, learn the sonnets, learn the forms. Oh my God. Yeah. Write in the crafts. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. So, bro, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm reading all about it. I'm writing it. And still, this work is not being accepted. My Yoruba is like italicized, just to kind of show the difference from the English and whatever it is, just to kind of fit in. I'm not even hardly using any of these kind of cultural representations or what is culturally for me, mm-hmm. because I'm just like, is it going to be considered poetry? If it goes out and I'm talking about pounded yam and a goosey, bro, like, is it, what's it going, what's it going to be? Mm-hmm. Like, what are all of these perceptions? Only to find out that it don't mean nothing. And then I look back at it and I don't even know, I don't even know what your story is with this. I'm really interested to know. Like, I look back and I'm just like, bro, did I waste years? Did I waste years in thinking, if I had thought like this years ago, what could have been happening? But then I'm like, no, there's a reason for situations. There's a reason why, why I had to arrive at this point to understand this. But those perceptions, man, it had me in bondage because it got to a point that I just didn't know how to function or how do I get accepted in this kind of literary field? Because I don't know. I'm trying to play by these rules only to find that these rules are consistently changing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So then what happens? So I don't know how, and for you, man, I, in in that story, like, how does it kind of, because we've yeah. had conversations over time, man. Yeah, no, no, abso- absolutely. I mean, for me, yeah, when I was trying to kind of get into the scene or whatever, well, I had no idea how to do mm. it, you know. Um, for me, the rules that were imposed on me were that you need to do the poetry scene. Yeah. You need to be a spoken word poet and do the scene, work the scene for a couple yeah. of years before you can even think about releasing a poetry collection. And my whole thing was that, I just don't have the confidence for that. I, yeah. You know, I rate people who get up there and can do that. You, Caleb Femi, you know, Vanessa, when I see all of you people doing I'm just like, I wish I could do that, but I can't. I just don't have the confidence for it, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And to a certain extent, you as well, there's there's acting involved as well, mm. do you know what I mean? Mm. Being able to connect with the audience in that kind of way, it just weren't for me. And so people were just kind of like, well, if you can't do that, then forget it. Mad. And so I owe my writing confidence to the journalist and soon-to-be novelist and writer Yomi Adegoke, mm. who I sent her some of my writing. After I was, I was writing some non-fiction, but I sent her some of my poetry. Yeah. And I was saying to her, you know, how am I going to get in? You know, they're not letting me in because I'm not doing this or that, whatever. And she just took my face in her hands <laughs> and said, Derek, you Obviously, are a, a great yeah. writer. You're going to make it. Yeah. And because I'd seen her call other people's names before they'd done anything or published anything, she'd be like, that person's going to go places. I just trusted her. Yeah. I said, right, if Yomi says so, cool. Yeah, yeah. And I just carried on doing what I was doing without thinking about anybody. Yeah. Just carried on doing what I was doing. If I never had that, I probably would still be in my room right now thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to go on the stage tonight. I'm going to try and do it tonight. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But obviously I can recite what I write and stuff like that, but I just can't do it in the, in the same way that, you know, you guys do. And that's just... Everybody's different, you know, everybody has a different skill set. Yeah. I don't have that skill set, do you mm. understand? And with kind of like the forms and stuff like that and meters and the poetics and all that kind of thing, I think because I've been reading for so long, it just got to a point where I just was like, okay, I've read this stuff, I just don't care for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care for it, you know. I had a conversation with Caleb Femi about this and he said, look, when the English realised that they couldn't write, I think he said it in Italian, like, their version of I am it pentameter. Mm, mm. He said they changed the rules mm. because it didn't work with their language, the way they, the cadences of the speech. And he said, when I'm trying to write about the mandem and, and things like that and the way we speak and the way the music of our tones and yeah, stuff like yeah. that, 
it's not going to work for these yeah. these forms. So I just need to do whatever it is I'm yeah, doing. What and I completely agree with him. And what was also interesting, I have no clue if you went through this. So when the proofs of mannerism were being sent out, it gets sent out to close friends, family, I don't know, like, and other people for the most part who've seen or heard of you or whatever it is. And then you know they have it, but you might not hear anything from them. And then I was like, oh, yo, what? Is it is it whack then? Is it? That's, <laughs> yeah. That never goes and away. And that, bro, and that, when you're talking about people's perceptions, is a thing of, like, what does this all mean? If this is like a curated list of people to go to, these people that you've known for like X amount of years, and you're not having anything back in like, I don't know, a month, two months. Yo, what does this mean? Am I now begging it if I call them and be like, yo, like, have you, have you read it? Like, what do you think? Because yeah. then it's a thing of, and this is what I mean, just throwing away these perceptions because at the end of the day, it still comes back to like, you have to still find a way to carry yourself through all of this. Yeah. But also there's, there's ego involved in that. And I, put, I, sit, I just sit yeah, down and think about this myself because I thought to myself, what makes me think Yo. when my door, when my book comes through their door, they're going to jump gonna on it, rip it to pieces <laughs> and sit, read it in one sitting. Do you know what I mean? They've and got other stuff a, going on. And it's such a ego death. But you have to go through this process to understand that you're not important. I mean, you are to a certain degree, you're in their life, but like that, you have to understand what these processes are. And this is part of those things on just like people's perceptions or what have you. You have to dash it. You have to dash it a long time ago. By the same time, it still eats at you sometimes because you're going to have a book coming out. We've both got books coming out this year. And a part of you would want to hear from people. Do you see what I mean? Or seeing what that would be like. But fundamentally, there still needs to be a process in which You've made peace, even if you don't hear from people. So all of this has been part of that process of that understanding. And it's something I don't think I would have understood up until this point that a book is coming out. Yeah. That I'm starting to kind of get those real visceral feelings and stuff, anxieties to some degree come through as well, you know? Yeah, no, I hear, I hear. Moving on to your fourth object, which is a food that sparks memories. Yes, Amala. Well, the, the Nigerians and Yorubas would know that I'm alive with the Wedu and Gregory. Listen, it's um. Can you describe those foods, man? Oh my gosh, how can I even describe these foods, man? It's a tradition. I'm alive is to my <laughs> to my knowledge of life is 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 cassava flour. You kind of like you boil it up in a kettle, you mm-hmm. put it in a pot, and then you just kind of put the cassava flour in. Yep. Turning stick is the biggest test of. This is not, it's like Marmite for some Nigerians because yeah. you either like this or you hate this. Like, it's what that whole process is. The accompanying kind of like stews would be a way to like leaves as well, kind of boiled and then you crush leaves or you blend it. It's like okra to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. It has a feel of it. And then you can either add like standard kind of red stew or beggary, which is like beans, like crushed beans as well. But then you add like different flavorings to it be it like palm oil or what have you but all of these it's like a combination so you have the amala as the base kind of like create like a hole in like a hole to some degree in the middle and then you add the ewedu and then you add the begri and then you can add the kind of reg to you on top and bruv it is an experience it's the baddest experience you go to lagos when i arrive and especially if i'm with my uncle he will just go to this spot the first place you or, go. like, is that the main spot for me anyway? We go to within the communities and that. It's not like in some kind of high street business. Do you know what I mean? It's proper, like, 
within the community of things and then you you just sit down and you and you take the time and just you just chop. chomp yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just chop but i think about that and i think about that memory of just being like yeah you're you're here like you know because you watch it be made there and then like it's proper like it's the, i would use a pot and like the turning stick in my at home but in Nige, it's a proper like process where you see the elders they're pounding they're making this from like you see that kind of makings of it and yeah. and all of those nuances just ring loud to me do you know what i mean yeah. and i miss that i miss the feeling of that i miss the sitting with my uncle i have my auntie man she got she got so lost in it she lost a tooth because she's got like she lost her tooth in it like he just came Serious. out and chomped in the meat. enjoying so much. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy it so much. She chomped in the meat, tooth come out. She didn't even clock until she left. And then she was like, Ra, where's my, where's my tooth gone? <laughs> where's it gone? Had to go back to the place. Oh my and God. And they found it. Wow. Literally found it, washed it, gave it back to her. She was proper laughing, boy, proper, proper laughing. Like, Ra, I can't believe I got so lost in the sauce that I lost the whole tooth to even clock. <laughs> but yeah, it's just them feelings that make you know that there is a home from home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, food plays, you know, a, a part in your, your poetry collection as well, mannerisms, and also played a big part in, of course, your, your stage show, yeah. Poet as well. I didn't clock that a lot of my writing, the journey of food occurs in a lot of my writing. And I like that. Definitely when I wrote Mannerism, I was journeying through food, but I did not link it to cult like my solo show wow, in terms really? of okay. I just didn't make that connection but it's it's really interesting how I deal with different situations via food mm. so in the one sense in Lapel David I deal with food in terms of making this kind of okra and in the text reads in the third section I deal with food in terms of comfort eating of which I didn't know I was going through at the time and the day the actual the day I wrote the text reads I met you I was writing the sequences okay. and you were, we were in library and I was writing and then you came past, you're like, oh bro, you're right. I'm just like, yeah, I'm writing for the poems and stuff. I had this big, <laughs> I had the food in front of me <laughs> and you were none the wiser. You just saw me, you just, you just saw me on passing. I think he was leaving. Yeah. Um, Cause you was all the blazer guy, man. I always remember the blazers. Like he was always, I don't oh, know. That what, was my, my what suit was, era. That was the suit era. I think it was like a, Oh man, I feel like a wine, red kind of reddish wine. I don't know, mm. defo blazer, and you was defo in that era, man. And you you walked past, you stood for a bit, we spoke for a bit, and then you was on your way. You're not to know that I'm comfort eating. You would never know that. Yeah, I wasn't prepared to tell you. You was like, "Oh, you're right." I'm like, "I'm cool," but I wasn't cool. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I was far from cool. My big mummy had just died, and everything in me was saying, "Just talk to him." Because it's not like we don't talk. It's not like you haven't gone through some stuff that you've openly shared with me because yeah. you've opened that window for conversation. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And everything was saying, just tell him what you're going through. And I didn't tell you. And I'm sorry I didn't tell you because I should have trusted in that. But I didn't know. I think it was just a thing of how do you say to someone like, oh, I'm, I'm eating a lot. You see what I mean? I'm eating a lot right now because I just had this two hours ago. I'm eating a lot and I need you just to say to me, everything's going to be all right. Stop eating this right now. But I didn't know how to say it. So instead I was just like, I'm cool. Like, you good? Da -da 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 -da. Let's, I'll catch you when I catch you. As we do. As we do. And I watched you leave, bro. I watched you walk down those stairs, walk away. And I was like, he's gone. 
you can still text him. Still didn't do anything. Mm. So it was just the whole process of just everything just playing back and seeing that and just being like, yo, you had every room. There was nothing stopping you from just being like, or just seeking some form of support or help. So yeah, food. So just seeing how food is just kind of moved through in that time, it's, it's something, man. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, everybody in their own time, do you know what I mean? Yeah, man. Um, and I'm sure just having that thought process would then change the way you would write about something. Yeah. Or the next, it will change the way you operate the next time and so on and so forth. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. When people talk to me about moments like that where they're just like, I wish I should have done that. I always just think, well, there's going to be another opportunity where you can do that. Mm. I hope you do do it then. Mm. I do feel we, sometimes we dwell too much on what we haven't done and forget about what we should do next yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. That happens a lot. So moving on to your final item now, which is, and I like this as well, something that you use every day. <laughs> the benefit of the doubt, bro. Again, goes back to observations. <laughs> Sounds dumb. If anything is done to me, if anything, I would like to give the benefit of doubt first. I would like to just be like, you're not doing it because you're not you, you're that mean or whatever right, it is. Right, right, right. There's probably something, and then digging deeper into this, I wonder whether there is conditioning over time that has enabled my thought process to be that, to give chances. Because I think, again, as a people and as a community of people, often what is given are chances. There's chance after chance after chance. You get burned, you get burned, you get burned. Until a point you're just like, yo, I'm not going to get burned anymore. So when I think about this benefit of doubt that I give sometimes, I don't know if it's steeped in the deepest conditioning over time. Like... Why can't I just switch straight away and just be like, no, you've done it because you're this. You've done it because you're this. You've done it because you're saying what you're saying because this is the reason. Yeah. As opposed to me being like, oh, no, maybe they had a bad day or maybe they just oversubscribed. Maybe I wasn't, my personality didn't shine. That's why I didn't get the interview. Right? Yeah. These are the ways that I always give the kind of benefit of the doubt rather than just being like, what does my gut say? I mean, some people are just wicked, though. Yo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm just bro and I'm just like why can't I just be like you're wicked yeah some people are well, you're just wicked but I agree with you yeah you're given wicked. the benefit of the doubt and I'm, is and I'm like, some... it's more helpful to us than it is to anybody exactly else. and I'm like but at the same time I don't want to go out in the street I don't want to come out of this podcast now walking down the road and be like it's always the one when you're walking past someone and you don't want to do that shoulder brush you would expect that the other person sees you measures the distance moves a bit and then you both don't have to bump shoulders or nothing. Especially if you're like near a wall. Especially if you can't if go anywhere. You can't go anywhere. You would <laughs> see it. But some people will still hold steady. Mm -hmm. And then it forces me to move out of their way. And I'm like, and my benefit for that would just be like, maybe they just didn't see me. But I'm like, what if they just knew they weren't going to go anywhere? So then what happens if I shoulder brush and I, that them shoulders now barge and it meets? Mm -hmm. And then they look back and be like, bro, did you not see me? I'm like, did you not see me? How does it, how do these things work in regards to that? So something I use often is I've seen pros of the benefit of doubt because I'm like, I've took the time. I'm like, let me exercise this. And it's actually come out on the other side to be like, good. It's good that you exercise that. And in some cases, in giving the benefit of doubt, I gave too much. Because yeah. it it turned out that it's just pure wickedness, bro. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just absolute <laughs> general behavior. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what so, you mean. So so this is this is it. So I'm like this. I'm so like 
Case by case. Case by case, man. I'm so case by case. But the only thing I have to be mindful of is what is it causing to my body? It always has to come back to the body. Mm. And I, maybe it's just me getting older and just being like, I deal with stress very different now. My stomach hurts when I Listen, go through stress. me too. It's, it's, I noticed this about four weeks ago, my right? My stomach. And I, I remember feeling really stressed and then I was yeah. just bloated. It's pain. And I thought it's to myself, pain. I haven't even eaten it. Why am I pain. bloated? And I just started connecting the two things together. Pain. And I really, because I used to, I now see online a lot of time people are like, mental health is gut health. Your yeah, gut health yeah, and your mental yeah. health are interlinked. So that, that pain is a horrible pain I go through mm. over the years. And I'm still trying to see doctors in regards to it to try to explain what's going on. Mm. They gave me Pepto-Bismol. I'm like, what's this, man? This is not dealing with what, this is we a will deal different. With Pepto-Bismol. This is a, this, <laughs> I don't even know why he even pronounced it properly. This is a different pain. And I'm like, oh, this is stress-related. Mm-hmm. All of these things that I'm taking in on a day-to-day is affecting my body. So I now need to be mindful of what I take into my body yeah. and what I need to kind of allow myself to be around. So this kind of thing of benefit of the doubt stuff, I need to find a way to kind of make sense of it. These observations make sense of it. Perceptions make sense of it. Because if I don't, everything comes back to my body. And hence why the cover is so important for the book. Because the black body is... It's fragile. Mm. It's fragile because it consumes so much. And what's the breaking point? And the maddest thing is, should the breaking point occur, is there a grace for that breaking point to happen? Or would it just be, oh, that's angry, that's intimidating. So the reaction is not even that of, that's stress. There's a poem in the book of a close friend who had so much stress inbuilt that the one time he let it out, he killed a man. And he's serving years in jail as a result of it. And I've grown up with him for so long. And this is what happens in your first offence. And there's so many questions there in terms of how he's built up stress that over the years that there's been no outlet for that to happen. And the one time he lets it out, boom, this is the result. And I'm like, it's this care here that needs to be kind of considered. But yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well... Yeah, man, we could go on for ages, just, you know, just chopping it up and stuff. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah, um, thank you, know you man. But yeah, so thank you for coming on to the show. And Mannerisms will be out by the time this podcast airs. So go and grab a copy. It's an incredible collection. Like, thank I'm, you. Like, seriously, like, I'm, when I was reading, I was really happy. Like, you know, yes, Yomi's really done what he needed to do. Nah, here, bro, you know? I appreciate it. And thank you for just being a part of this journey from kind of thinking points to execution to now this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Honestly, it, you know? it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Wherever You Are. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Yomi's book, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcast. I'm Derek Awusu and I'll see you next time. <laughs>